There are a few things, certainties of life, birth, taxes, and rest assured, death will come for us all. Unlike fables and legends that have lured many to seek the fountain of youth, cryogenics, or even a brain in a jar, if they do exist, it most certainly won't be available to the good common folks like you and me. So life is what we make of it, the people we meet, the accomplishments we achieve, and more importantly, the worth we have with our fellow man is really all there is. We all die, and we will all end up stripped away and become skeletal remains. But what happens to our spirit, soul, and our skeleton afterwards? Is death really the end, or is death just the beginning? Join us tonight if you dare, as we talk about funeral rites. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome friends to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, some believe quite literally our bones hold the key to many secrets, including but not limited to actually communicating with the dead. Funeral is defined as a ceremony connected with the final disposition of a corpse. Most people, I would assume, are familiar with funerals of some sort at this point. You know, if you you make it to be an adult, unfortunately, you're bound to lose someone in your family. Probably more the traditional funerals here in America. I lost my, my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side at a fairly young age, and, and since then, obviously, I've lost a few family members and friends along the way. So you get to be kind of familiar with it. You know, there are some pretty standard funeral rites, some standard death rites, as you will. I figured we would touch on those. We would talk about the, the ordinary before we started talking about the extraordinary. <laughs> but you have cremation, which obviously is where the remains of the person are burned down to their, their ashes, and then disposition from there. A lot of people have their ashes scattered in various places yeah. where, you know, off into the ocean, off the side of a mountain, a cliff, whatever. Apparently, Disney World has a ban on scattering ashes in the Haunted Mansion ride. They frown upon that. Yeah, they don't like that. But I think that would add to advertising <laughs> myself. I, yeah, what better place, right? The Haunted Mansion, by the way, well, my favorite ride at Disney World. I love it. <laughs> you have the most common, I believe, which is just burial, where you, you inter the remains in the earth. Uh, some other kinds. You have the Sky Funeral, where the body is left open to the air. Um, well, you know, in some cultures, it's so that the vultures can get to the body. Uh, in some other cultures, it's the belief that the, you know, the soul can't properly ascend to heaven unless the body's left out. You have burial at sea, which I would assume most people are probably familiar with. This typically happens in, you know, Navy or, or in, you know, ships at sea, obviously. Uh, but usually you just sort of bundle up the body and you, you dump it in the ocean. And I mean, we are pulling back. We've got to also understand that funeral rites, no matter what type they may be, it's just as much for the people left behind, yeah. obviously, more so than the person who is deceased. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the person who's deceased, it, it, at that point in time, they're pretty much done with this physical Yeah, they've vessel. washed their hands of this and whatever their beliefs are. You know, of course, to quote one of my favorite TV shows, and if you've ever seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, Danny DeVito's character, and, you know, once I'm dead, I don't care. Just dump me in the trash. I don't. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't affect me at all. A couple more recent 
types of, of funeral rites. You have the green funeral, which is, of course, a funeral which tries to involve all biodegradable materials so that it's environmentally friendly, which, you know, in this day and age, it seems more and more important. Right. And then probably the most modern of burial rites, the space burial, which I ah, yes. don't even know if that's actually technically happened. I believe... Was it Gene Roddenberry had some of his ashes taken on a I'm, space shuttle? I believe I read something about that, yes. And so, you know, the remains are, are put out in space. Oh, yeah, for Gene Roddenberry. I mean, he's one Ab- of those. Absolutely. And maybe even James Doohan, who played Scotty, I think might have done that as well. But, uh, yeah, you can be buried in space now. And I think, I think every, you know, for a certain amount of money, anybody can do that these days. Although the American space program, we're not getting out there quite as often as we used to. Well, we've got some personal... Uh individuals that are probably beckoning on nasa's door to uh, beat them to a lot of stuff i have my own opinion about rich people (laughs) who have nothing better to do than somehow go to space that money would be better spent here on earth in my opinion yeah now you were talking about different funeral uh rites and and how we handle it uh one of the things i've kind of stumbled across we had a a lady that come in the shop here and she had a, a very interesting ornate amulet around her neck yeah i'd seen where people have family members ashes ashes of a family member i believe you can actually uh, if you have the money for it have your family members remains the carbon compressed down to a diamond that you can then add into jewelry or whatever yeah that's kind of crazy if you think about it then again i don't know if you've ever been you know involved in cremation or or seen it. it it is a crazy thought to me, I, I still, my my father, my stepfather was cremated. My mother was cremated. And if you've ever seen the, the grand sum total of what's behind, I mean, it's basically a cardboard box, probably the dimensions of a piece of paper. Yeah. Maybe three or four. Much, much smaller than what you might consider. When you take and condense all that a person was into that, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around sometimes. You know, I you remember family members and the experiences and all that, and then you think that that's that's... When you break it all down, that's what you have left. And again, I was brought up in a you know very Christian religious household, and I mean, literally, the Bible says "dust to dust," and yeah. that's quite essentially the best case, I would think. Now, you do have you know variations of these common funerals, uh, and I was going to talk about a few of those if you didn't mind. Mm-hmm. And then Go right again, like I said, we'll talk about some of the more normal ones before we get into some of the weird ones. Weird. No disrespect, obviously. These are you know people's beliefs. I don't mean to disrespect them in any way. But for us, from a Western viewpoint, from a primary Christian viewpoint, they're they're strange to us. Right, so I'm right. not passing judgment or anything. But common there. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, of course, you have the Christian funeral, which usually involves the offering of prayers, uh, scripture readings from the Bible, sermons, eulogies. Um, something I did find interesting is, is music is, is generally forbidden in Catholic churches. As music's always been a part of uh, the funerals I've been to, and you know, typically you would bury your your dead on a consecrated ground. Uh, used to be ground near churches, but you know, graveyards. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of music, it is well known in my house that when I die, the only song that I care that gets played at my funeral, Ozzy Osbourne's "See You on the Other Side." I think that's an, that's very fitting for you. Very Bill. fitting. I know you're for, a huge, huge Ozzy fan. Well, too. And, and and the song is. I was going to say the context of the yeah. song definitely works. My kids, of course, didn't like it the first couple of times I talked about it, but I was. This is the one thing. Like when I die, I don't care when Do it happens. Do this one thing for me. If you've never listened to me before, so I, I don't think I'm asking. It's one song. That's all I need. And it is kind of funny that you mentioned that. Um, Music is kind of like with me growing up in the church, 
you know, it, it seemed to be for a longest time, it has to be old hymns to as I've grown older and, and people I've worked with that unfortunately have passed away for whatever reasons have kind of chosen more non-traditional music, such as like rock. One gentleman's funeral I went to, uh, I worked with, uh, that's all he had played. Well, it came out that he was in garage bands and stuff for a big portion of his life. That was a side of his life I had not known because I met him much afterwards. But, I mean, that was a big portion of his life, and that's what he had requested of his daughter is, I want all, like, 80s rock music played <laughs> at my funeral. And I remember going in, and it was like, oh, this is this is different, but it's kind of kind of cool. I, I kind of like it. Well, if my kids get to play any other song, the only other song I would like to be played at my funeral would be My Way by Elvis. So, yep. Now, that one is a little more personal in that my mom was a huge Elvis fan, and I felt it would have been appropriate for her service. So, you know, let's, you. let's be look, honest. We all do it our, you know, our way in the end, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's the Christian faith. That's That's the one I think most of us would identify with. Then you would go on. I would say Jewish would probably be another fairly common. Uh, they they follow fairly specific rites with, with small variations. They do ask that the burial rites take place as soon as possible. They bathe the body and shroud the body, uh, keep watch over it. They do a funeral service that includes eulogies and brief prayers. Uh, they do bury the dead body in a grave. The filling in of the grave is traditionally done by family members. And in many communities, the deceased is positioned so that the feet face the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I found that kind of interesting. Let's say his Islamic. They follow fairly specific rites. They believe the rituals should take place as soon as possible. They bathe the dead body in water. They enshroud it in white cotton or linen cloth. They recite a funeral prayer that's appropriate for Muslims. They bury the dead in a grave that is appropriate for Muslims. I guess they have certain you know rites and, and beliefs for that. And then they position the, the deceased so that the, when the body is turned on its right side, it would face Mecca. So I found that, that commonality between those two. And, of course, in Christian faith, uh, we're facing, usually when we're buried in graveyard or cemetery, towards the east where the sun will rise. I, I, didn't, I wasn't unfamiliar with that. Hindu, adults are typically cremated while children are buried. Um, the rites are considered a rite of passage. The soul, the immortal essence, is released in the Antiyeshti ritual so that it can, it can go on to its next step. They consider the body and, and even our universe a transitory vessel for the, the voyage of the soul. Hmm. And the last rites, the last rite of the passage is meant to return the body to the five elements, air, water, fire, earth, which we're familiar with, and space, which is the fifth element for them. And then the body is usually cremated within a day of death, washed, wrapped in a cloth with the two big toes tied together with a string. That's odd. Not sure why. And then let's go to like the, the strangest of the common, if you will. And I have never even heard of this faith before, the Baha'i faith. Never heard of it. Uh, they don't do any embalming, and they have a prohibition against cremation. They will typically use a chrysolite or hardwood casket. They wrap the body in silk or cotton, and burial must not happen farther than one hour from the place of death, including flights. My son and I got to talking about that one. We found that kind of, you would think it would be more about distance than time. Yeah. But apparently it's about the time. But you ha you can't be buried more than an hour from where you, you so died. So if you were rich and you owned a Cessna jet, you could travel, obviously, a lot further distance yeah. than an hour from the time you left. But what if you were traveling overseas, essentially you would never be buried with family. That's what he said. You, you couldn't be buried in a familial plot. You couldn't be buried 
where you were born, for example. Let's say That's you're in odd. the military and you get deployed overseas yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So we found that kind of weird. And again, the idea that it's based on the time of travel, not the distance yeah, not of travel. The distance. So they'll place a ring on the deceased finger and there is an etching on the ring that says, I came forth from God and returned unto him, detached from all save him, holding fast to his name, the merciful, the compassionate. And uh, they have only one prayer that's allowed at their burial rites, and it must be read as a group when it happens. So hmm. they, they had some interesting uh, variations, but again, apparently one of the more common religious ones. And again, I, I think with those examples, we should have hit on what most people are familiar with. I, again, most of the people- I've got one more. Okay. Are you familiar with Awake? I'm familiar with the practice, yeah. The practice of awake. While it's not necessarily the final resting place, it it seems to be something that's kind of, you know, favored out. But I know I've never personally attended awake, but I know my wife has. Uh, A lot of her family uh, is from Kentucky. And nothing against that at all. I have some of my descendants from Kentucky, so I'm not throwing stones here. <laughs> the way you said, like, Kentucky people are the worst. Uh, well, I mean, her her <laughs> grandmother had an outhouse till probably 1990s. Well, Didn't even have, well, she had indoor plumbing for the sink, but the outhouse, until she got to a point, an age, she refused to even use the sink water. She would go down with the, with a the bucket to the well, even though she had water in the sink, and then finally... My wife's dad put in a bathroom in the kitchen because, I mean, let's face it, 80-some-year-old woman going down the side of a hill in the winter trying to get to the outhouse, you know, kind of thing. It's my understanding my stepdad, who passed away in his 50s back in the late 90s, Mm -hmm. early 2000s maybe. I'm trying to remember now, but I would have been 21, I think, at the time, 2021, around there. So, yeah, late 90s. He grew up poor in Mississippi, and and they didn't have electricity or running water, any of that. I think even by the time he had left home, I don't think they had those, you know, luxuries. luxuries. And he left to go serve in Vietnam. So to give you an idea of when he left home and and the time yeah. frame, I mean, that yeah. seems modern for us, right? But you grew up in a in a poor place, you know, in the backwoods like that. But yeah, like my wife attended, I believe it was an aunt's wake. And she said it was, of course, she was a young age. I'd say she was probably eight or 10 years old, to put it in perspective. But she said that was one of the strangest things she's ever been involved with. And obviously, for those of you who may not be familiar with the wake, they just simply bring the body, usually in a coffin, and set it up on dining room table or end tables or whatever. And they invite family and friends to the house. Uh, It's just kind of an open viewing Similar to what a visitation would be at the funeral home. You just have it there at the house. And, you know, there may be a full-blown meal, you know, uh, just a celebration of life. And some variations of that involve the covering of mirrors. Yes. That, because um, spiritually speaking, a mirror can trap a soul. It can confuse the, the departing soul. So you cover all the mirrors in the house. And I believe you have to leave a door or a window open even in that case. For the spirit to be able to escape. To, I have also leave. heard that. Now, my wife, Sarah, and hopefully she doesn't mind me saying this, but she she has told me this story. She said, I remember walking up, I think it was with, with her dad, uh, and the aunt was on his side of the family, and she swears to this day that she smiled at her. Her dead aunt lying there in, in the coffin smiled at her when she came up to look, and she said, that still haunts me to this day. Let me ask you, and this may sound weird. Of course, this would be me as a child. I I, I don't know. When you first attended a funeral, I was seven years old when my grandfather on my mom's side died. There you go. That's that's 
same, maybe a few years older than that. It's always been my thing at a funeral, especially when I was younger. Let's say as an older person, it's a hope and a prayer that that's I know not is not going to happen. But as a child, I was always sort of waiting for this person to, you know, sit up and be like, yeah. okay, that's you don't really fully comprehend. Yeah, it, you're, you're, you, know. you don't you're not well, ready been for that. Sick. Maybe they're just resting. Yeah, we're going to go to the funeral home and and see grandpa again. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, like I said, as an adult, it's sort of a, an empty hope that like, okay, this isn't really happening, but. I think that pretty well concludes some of the more common practices or what we here in America would, would call common practices. So uh, I'll dive into a little bit of uh, more uncommon practices. In Madagascar, on a large island in the Indian Ocean, there you will find the indigenous people. I believe they're, it's pronounced Malagasy. They'll gather together for a multi-generational celebration. I believe they call it the Famadiana. Yes, the Famadiana. This is not a typical family reunion by any means. No, this this was <laughs> one of the first ones I found when we were doing the research. It was very different. Because you'll see not only the living are invited, but it's also very mandatory that the dead come along as well. Usually occurs every five to seven years, and the family or relatives of the deceased will come together to celebrate the life of a particular loved one or maybe a handful of particular loved ones who has passed on. The body is exhumed, having been buried, obviously. It's carefully and respectfully taken out. It's cleaned and rolled in a death shroud, similar to a cloth or woven mummy-looking blanket wrapping. Then the practice, uh, which is called shouldering, is done, and that is when the body is carried on the shoulders of family members and passed along uh, in the streets, shuffling it from one shoulder to another in a form of a parade. This may sound a bit eerie, but it's actually done quite respectfully and lovingly. Uh, They feel that in, in their culture, this is a way that they're History, their ancestors are not forgotten, and it allows them to relive memories and things that were shared by them. Part of it is also the belief that the dead do not join the afterlife until the body is completely decomposed. So the the essence, the soul, whatever they call it, is still there. there. That makes sense. That makes sense. And they use it as an opportunity even to pass along like family news and ask for blessings and things like that. Like you said, they they dance and and have these big, huge feasts. Huge family reunion and celebration. So I thought that was quite interesting. And when it's all over, they they reinter the body. Yes, they put them back down, and and maybe that particular body's not chosen for the next five to seven years, and and other bodies are, you know, so everybody shares in the family reunion. Now, again, a lot of what I'm going to talk about has to do with the bones. So I think we need to take a step back and look at that. In the human body, we are comprised of 206 bones, I believe. Each one has been studied and cataloged by hundreds, if not thousands, of scholars through the years. But still, the skeleton and the skull in particular seem to leave the most image, if you will, uh, for us living humans. It's these symbols, the skeleton and the skull, that are often used to depict in multiple countries and multiple religions the general reference to death. But it also reminds us of our own mortality. We see when we are reminded of these things just how fragile our life really is. We're all here for a very short time. We're born, we live, if allowed, we we live to be old, and then, most certainly, death comes calling. The bones, of course, then represent to us just how frail this life was, and that no matter what we did, what our job, what our title, our wealth, our achievements, it really doesn't matter. We're all going to be stripped back down, essentially, to this same form. 
the symbol of the skull. It's been flown by pirates, such as on the Jolly Roger. Uh, you know, the reference, mess with us and you'll surely die. That's kind of what that whole black pirate flag with the white skull represents. The symbol of the skull is often used on poisons or chemicals throughout the centuries to remind us very specifically there on the label, implying take this and you may die. Bones were once believed to actually be the vessel for our souls, as Bill kind of touched upon, until that body kind of totally decays away. The spirit or essence in a lot of religions and cultures are believed to stay with the bones, and especially the skull. It's something in the past centuries Americans have somewhat pulled away from. Still, many countries and cultures firmly believe in this practice. On burial sites, skulls were often coated in plaster to help protect it, even dipped in gold. Often the eye sockets may have even had coins or even gems placed inside so that in later years, a person staring into the eyes of the skull is believed could communicate with one another. Now, you you know the origin of the coins, right? Of course. I'm going to let well, you say it. So yes, you could pay the ferryman across the river Styx when your time was up. You had a way to pay your, you, you could pay your way into the afterlife. And, and I, I know originally was a Greek mythology yes was the river sticks you could yep. pay your way you paid the, the ferryman so you could go to hell and then because i think everybody at that point in time that was where you went yep. yeah yeah <laughs> the, the, the it was the underworld it wasn't really hell but the, yeah, underworld. It was the underworld but yeah that that coin thing and i know it continued on and in some cases it was basically like if a body died you put the coins on the eyes so that they could afford a funeral uh, in pirate circles i think it was jewelry they wore those big gold earrings but the idea was the earring was meant to pay for funeral services wherever they happened to die and yeah, wherever they happened to fall uh strangely enough morgan freeman the actor he still wears giant diamond stud earrings and he's told people that's literally why he does it in case he dies somewhere Did not know that yeah in case he dies somewhere that they can always sell the diamonds to pay for his funeral service interesting so. interesting i would assume that was just like an, an evolution of the practice huh? Another story is uh, in La Paz, Bolivia. Each year, on November 8th, the indigenous Amaraya people gather in an ancient custom, a colorful, festive procession known as the Festival of Skulls. The Amara people of Bolivia and Peru commonly keep human skulls of loved ones that have passed on in their homes, in shrines, or places of honor. Family and friends can make offerings to these skulls for wisdom, luck, and guidance. Similar to what you might do in the living life with your mother, father, grandparent, or special friend, seeking advice on different things or, you know, support or opinions. Now, during the Festival of Skulls, again on November 8th of each year, each family will bring down at least one, but as many as five or six of these skulls of family members. Often they are placed in kind of a glass shadow box, a frame, uh, to help protect them, or similar container adorned with ribbons, silk ribbons in particular, flowers and trinkets. Now, as many as 20,000 people gather for this family celebration. It's quite a spectacle to witness for sure. If it's cold or chilly that morning, the skulls may be dressed appropriately, possibly wearing a stocking cap. Uh, often they'll have their name embroidered on that stocking cap. That would be, of course, to keep their heads warm um, on the skull. Uh, if it uh, happens to be an extremely sunny day, sunglasses most likely will be applied over the eye sockets of the skulls of those attending. And certain offerings are typically offered throughout the entire day by family and friends to the various skulls that are positioned uh, there along the street side or on ledges. 
Now, these might include very similar to what you might believe of alcohol, tobacco, coins. Now, now here I've got to stop. Imagine, if you will, a cool, sunshiny morning, you know, November 8th. The eye sockets are covered with shades, got a stocking cap on, and a lit cigarette hanging out of the mouth. This is very typical of what you might see there. These skulls are considered by the people as a portal from the living through the veils of the dead. And if you think about it, we as humans are infatuated with how we look, especially our face. Think about how many hours we, or maybe someone you know, grooming of hair, makeup, lipstick, piercing, skin conditioning on our faces to try to make ourselves as presentable as we might. It's no different in the life of the dead here. They take great pride in trying to adorn the skulls and, again, decorate them and celebrate them. But you used a phrase there that I'm not sure you can legally use, which was life of the dead. Life of the dead. <laughs> yes, yes. It's kind of an oxymoron. But in their culture, that's actually what they call it. Life of the dead. Because to your point, maybe they haven't totally transitioned yet. They're kind of st- in our terms, we might say they're stuck here when we do paranormal ghost hunts and stuff. Essentially, that's what we're trying to to drum up. Well, not every funeral, you know, does the the deceased travel into the afterworld by themselves. Um, a lot of ancient Egyptian rites, I know they would bury servants and, and oh, animals yes. and whatnot with, with particularly powerful people when they passed away. Small armies. Yeah, pharaohs and the like. There's a couple of practices. Uh, if you're familiar with Viking funerals. It's not just strictly limited to the flaming boat, which is what I thought when I first started reading about it. Um, but it turns out they were actually considered quite brutal affairs. All I can think of is the Game of Thrones, you know, Dothraki wedding, where it's, it's a brutal affair, and it's not really considered a success unless many people die. Many people's got to die. So, deceased chieftains would be temporarily buried while new funeral clothes were prepared, uh, and one of the chief slave girls would volunteer to join him in the afterlife. Now, she would be guarded day and night during the time that his funerary garb was being prepared, and she would get to enjoy large amounts of intoxicating drinks. Now, at some point, she would, and I'm going to try to phrase this the nicest way I can, lay with every man of the village, every every man under this chieftain's Alrighty then. authority, and and each would tell her at some point during the act, tell your master that I did this because of my love for him. Uh, she <laughs> would then twisted. Yeah, she would then be strangled with a rope and stabbed by the village matriarch, and then be placed alongside her chief on the wooden ship. Before it was set alight and, and, you know, pushed out to, to sea. Okay. Obviously, that kind of tradition would be fairly frowned upon in this day and age. I, I'm trying to think how that might look for the volunteers, you know, the chieftains past. We have any volunteers and, you know, all the, the, the virgin type young women. <laughs> oh, pick me, pick me. A practice known as sati in India, which is, of course, now banned, but recently widowed women would set themselves on fire on their husband's funeral pyre. Uh, it was seen as a voluntary act, but there obviously were cases where the widow had to be forced to do this, uh, in some cases even dragged against her will to the funeral pyre. <laughs> wow. Um, no one's really quite sure of the origins, but it believed that it started in an effort to prevent women who were married to rich husbands from killing their husbands, inheriting their wealth, <laughs> and then marrying the man they wanted to marry. Ah, yes. It all comes down to money and 
Also, possibly it was intended to allow husbands and wives to enter the afterlife together. Well, so, yeah, there's the kinder uh, aspect. We'll go with that. Similar traditions were also practiced by Egyptians, Greeks, Goths, and Scythians. Now, to go kind of back to the one you were talking about earlier, uh, Filipino death traditions, mm-hmm. uh, kind of similar to what you were talking about before I jumped in here. The Binguet of the northwestern Philippines, they blindfold their dead and place them next to the main entrance of the house. The Tinguin dress the bodies in their best clothes and then sit them in a chair uh, and place a lit cigarette in their lips. <laughs> the Cavatino near Manila bury their dead in a hollowed out tree trunk. Uh, when someone becomes critically ill and they think their time is coming up, they actually go and select the tree where they will be entombed. Interesting. I would assume that makes logging in that country... Quite the surprise. Yeah, un- uncomfortable at times. I'm reminded of life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> Uh, and the Apeo in the north, they bury their dead under the kitchen. And, and I can uh, find no no extrapolation for why. But. Hmm. Well, I'm going to bring it back home a little closer. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is a, a, a rather lengthy story, but I definitely stumbled across this and felt uh, this story needs to be told. Uh, I had never heard of this, but I guarantee you I am planning a trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania after this. High atop the city, uh, an elevated plateau sets St. Anthony's Chapel. The church is quite active, with hundreds of Christians entering its door and under its beautiful spires each and every day. But it's not the outside of the church that's interesting, it's what's inside. Now granted, as you enter, you're greeted by beautiful woodwork and craftsmanship of carvings and arches and stained glass. Inside is a collection of thousands of bones that once belonged to Catholic saints. Here you can find a host of bones, partial bones, skulls, and even full skeletons. Most are very elaborately displayed in gold or ornate frames and cases intended to be viewed and looked upon rather than buried. Here there are actually over 5,000 bone relics, the second largest collection only to the Vatican itself. Many Christians consider holy relics such as these to be quite sacred. And it is well known that the bones of many saints are well preserved and kept in various cathedrals throughout the entire world. But how did such a collection of vast relics like this end up in Pittsburgh, when most, if not all, came from overseas in the Holy Land? It is due to Father Mullinger. He built this chapel. He obtained most of these in the late 1880s, when beliefs and faith started to kind of change a bit. The thought was that these items really had no use and at the time were began to be discarded out of the chapels and churches. Now, Father Molinger had a vast network of people in Europe who were preserving these relics, and when he would travel several times to and from uh, America to there, he would collect these relics. It was his belief, like many before him, to have a holy relic, a piece, if you will, of a saint in your chapel was like having a tiny piece of God surrounding you. So why would he not try to obtain as many of these holy relics, which had been collected for decades and centuries prior that were now, only now, being discarded? Now, each and every piece of the 5,000-plus holy relics and bones are sealed with an original wax seal. This serves to prove authenticity, but also to help ensure no item is tampered with in any way as to break that wax seal. You might ask, why? Why are saints' bones considered such holy relics? Well, in Christianity especially, it's not unusual in Europe to find skeletal remains bejeweled with gems, gold, silver, and expensive attire. Some of the entire skulls have been dipped in gold. It makes them look like fine pieces of art, if you will. 
Now, this is because of the belief and respect Christians have on the remains of these saints who are held in such high accord. The belief is when a saint was tortured and killed as a martyr for their beliefs, their sanctity, their beliefs, their power was literally infused into those bones. After all, the bones are the foundation in which the entire body is built upon. Therefore, these skeletal remains are believed to hold great power and sanctity that can still be observed and felt and experienced by anyone looking upon them even today. Now, this may all sound a bit strange, but bear with me. There is actually a biblical story in 2 Kings of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible that shines a bit of a chilling light on this subject. According to the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, there was a burial procession that was occurring where a group was carrying the deceased along a trail towards a destination for a burial. Now, somewhere during this procession, I guess upon arriving very closely to their final resting point, invaders were spotted coming over the mountain peaks to attack. Now, at that time, the people cast the deceased body down at the site where it landed on Prophet Elisha's skeletal remains, now which they had been placed there for some time. Now, according to the Bible, it states, with the deceased body landing on the prophet's remains, the deceased was resurrected. Yes, you heard me correct. The deceased came back to life. So, obviously, the bones of the prophet Elisha contained some sort of power, giving back the gift of life itself. Another biblical account is that Jesus Christ of course, raising Lazarus. Most of us are probably familiar with this story. Jesus called out to the deceased, Lazarus, come forth, come forth, Lazarus. And he rose up from the dead and walked alongside Jesus. Now, there are several accounts through time that when Lazarus died in later, older years, his bones became quite sought after, believing they certainly had power or magic, if you will. There are actually priest documentations of some of these bones that survived and were kept in various chapels and the priest to use in special rites. With the proper prayers, respect, and procedures with some of these bones nearby, it is believed they could heal the sick and even remove disease or near-death conditions. At one time, especially, there was a quite lucrative underground black market that even chapels competed with others to secure such holy relics. This could lead, of course, to false relics, much like in today's era with the black market, knockoffs and fakes, whenever high money is at stake. There are, however, documented authentic skeletal remains as holy relics. One of these has to be the skull of Mary Magdalene. Now, her skull is on display in the southwest of France since about the 4th century, in the Belisca of St. Maxim. They have been carbon dated, the skull I mean, the bones, have been carbon dated multiple occasions and studied and are confirmed authentic. Because of her being present both at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this made her bones in particularly more important, especially her skull. The belief that these remains can gain the power of resurrection Thousands who have come in contact with her remains to pay tribute have stated they have come away feeling very emotional and even crying, but often healed. Many priests speak of the closing on some of the days of the chapels where they find discarded walking crutches that have been left because apparently they were no longer needed. So if you needed to go hunt vampires or werewolves or whatnot, you know where to go, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) 
I believe they, they carry relics and supernatural. And I've read definitely read a lot of books, you know, fictional books, obviously. But <laughs> I, I just had no idea that that was right there in Pittsburgh. I mean, just like, wow. So we've talked a little bit about uh, respectful treatment of the bones and skeletons and the deceased. But what happens when the bones of the deceased are not treated with respect? Perhaps the answer can be found in the underground labyrinth beneath Paris, France. That is, to my understanding, quite a scary place. Uh, yes. I, I actually read it in a deal the other day that said they found a fully functional theater, with like theater seating and a, and a screen and the whole nine yards. And they, they you know, made a some kind of map or whatever to get back there. And when the authorities got back there, cause it's illegal to habitate down there or anything. And when they got back there, everything had been removed. There was no evidence that there had ever been anything there except for a note that said, do not follow us. <laughs> Eerie little warning. And what we're alluding to is called the empire of the dead. More than 2 million people live in this area, but just below all of them lies a centuries old labyrinth of millions of bodies in the Paris catacombs. When you walk in, you will see stacks of various bones, kind of segregated piles of leg bones, piles of pelvises, piles of skulls. Just the image, the mental image conjured by that. Just That is something like right out of Dungeons and Dragons on crack. And I'm, I'm sure I've seen <laughs> pictures of it. And, and it, there's also, I don't know the church, but they, they call it an ossuary. But there's a church somewhere in, in Europe that, that kind of looks like every, it's all bone. I'm sure you've seen the pictures. Of yes. it. I can't remember where it's at. Like but around the windows, yeah, arches are all, all made of bones of is that kind of columns of bones. Disturbing. And, yeah. Well, the problem is you don't know what bones go with the other bones. The bodies have been divided up into these sections, these groupings to create a macabre art that is, well, to some breathtaking. You enter beneath a small doorframe, which above is inscribed, Stop, this is the Empire of the Dead. According to some estimates, as many as six million skeletal remains lie in these miles of underground labyrinths. Today, if you tour the area, there is just over one mile of tunnel that you can follow currently open to the public. You may ask, why? Why are all these bones here? Well, even centuries ago, Paris was overpopulated. Traditional graveyards quickly filled up, even with stacking bodies one on top of another. Now, we've heard of this by basically like in New Orleans, where they had stacked bodies on top of bodies, and, and essentially they made crypts where they could just, for lack of a better term, almost have a rake that they pushed the former remains out of, and they would put another one, and it would just kind of go down underneath and fall in a pile. It was similar here, but at a much higher volume. The physical burial of bones stopped in Paris in about 1780. As of 1785, the act of transporting bones from graveyards to free up space for buildings and expansion began. Those bones were then brought to this place. As of 1809, the Empire of the Dead Catacombs were officially opened to the public. Since so many bones were brought in at one time, it was nearly impossible to keep them divided and separated. So they quickly started assembling stacks of bones. Somewhere along the line, a decision was made since these catacombs were to be open to the public viewing and something previously was intended for only the wealthy. The bones would have certain liberties taken with them, using them as macabre art. 
a way to welcome the common person into catacombs to visit and pay respect. I really, and God help me, maybe this says something about my brain. When you said certain liberties, my, oh, I was thinking something totally different. <laughs> and I'm glad that I was wrong. Okay, okay. <laughs> now, obviously, the common person is not probably would not have been familiar with catacombs because, again, that was something that was established more for the wealthy, the royalty. So this was kind of a lighthearted feeling rather than one of a traditional morgue or cemetery, making this, when it opened, quite the party place. Uh, it was macabre in every aspect of the words, but the common person didn't maybe understand and fully realize everything that had occurred. Still, this was uh, quite uncommon for the Christian belief, so it was somewhat of a stretch for some. And since previously the belief that bones needed to remain intact out of respect, the, the fact of the matter, the city was just trying to remedy a problem. They had way too many bones, and to fix the issue, they simply just moved them. Now, they, they tried to sell it, if you will, to the novice commoners, and it did seem to work. Uh, still to this day, you can go and tour this uh, catacombs uh, if you like or dare. These catacombs are long and winding. It's, it's actually very easy to get lost. Back in 1804, there's a tale of a man, and, and I still try to wrap my mind around this. He had a cellar down below in his house that apparently had a tunnel that then connected to some of these catacombs. That just seems very weird to me. But I guess it's just like another world underneath there of catacombs well, and tunnels. To my understanding, there's a lot of cities, even in like America, I think Seattle is one of them that supposedly has a, at one point in time, there was a part of Seattle that burned and they just built the new city over the, top, over the top, of top of it. And they literally like, like you can go underneath and the old buildings are still Structures, there. Structures, walls, windows, and doors. I, I think like New York uh, with the subway system and the sewer system is very similar, that there's basically an entire city underneath new york city yeah i've heard that and so i would assume that some of these much much older, older. cities definitely i guess it stands to reason but i mean well the story let me get back to the story in 1804 the man went down to his his cellar and he was looking to fetch a special bottle of cognac now i don't know if the man was already a little intoxicated maybe but instead of staying in his little wine cellar he decided to go out this tunnel and uh he took a wrong turn and went down a few too many hallways and got himself lost. He never returned. Uh, his body was found 11 years later, and they simply just added his bones to the exact spot he died with the other stacks of bones. The, the act of transporting bones to the catacombs stopped in 1860-1861 time frame due to space. There simply was no more space even there to house all of these bones. The design of the tunnels were made to be a spectacle of sorts, the macabre art, as I have mentioned, where you could not tell the wealthiest from the poorest. Well, I mean, at that point, right? Like, in the end, we all go in a six-foot hole or we're all bones or whatever. Cremated or whatever. Rich or poor or whatever. You know, I, I, I've heard plenty of anecdotes and, and seen video of it where people apparently still get lost in the, the catacombs underneath Paris. Even to this day, they've found, like, camcorders with... That the batteries just run out, you know, and then, then yeah. that person was just lost. No light. I mean, yeah. So I, I can't, you know, we talk about 
primal fears and, and that there's a reason they all exist. I mean, being afraid of the dark and then finding yourself in a place like that. Because let's be honest, you might not be afraid of the dark, but it, most people don't experience dark at that level either. That's the well, absolute absence of light at a certain point. And then let's just add that you don't have any light, so you stumble and fall into a pile of bones and you yeah, know that horrifying. it's bones. There, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Well, I've got one more story, I think, before you uh, have a story to wrap us up. And this is in Uttarakhand, India. High along the Himalayan mountains sets a large body of water, and it's called Rupkand Lake. Uh-oh. Is, is this the lake that's they found all the... All the body oh, okay. remains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is I've, a I've weird I've heard this story one. before. Yes. In most of the months of the year, this particular lake is frozen. However, in the other few months, a bizarre spectacle can be witnessed. You will find literally thousands of human bones scattered around and in the lake. This is a very well-known phenomenon for many decades to hikers and investigators to the region. And yes, indeed, if you are one of the willing and able, you can today go travel up here and witness this yourself. Often these visitors will retrieve the bones of the dead that they see lying there in the lake and maybe perhaps arrange them in a stack or try to even organize them. In other instances, unfortunately, some bones have been removed and taken as souvenirs. Locals are known to also visit the site and pay their respects, but the origin of the location remains a mystery. Did all of these people die here, or were the remains brought here? Or even more eerily, was it, were they all possibly sacrificed here? It is reported that somewhere between 600 to 800 adult skeletal remains reside here. It's also speculated that these are most likely not a result of a mass cataclysmic event, but rather the bodies are a vast denomination of different cultures, countries, and get this, separated by over a thousand years yeah I was gonna say the, the the thing that i read so the, the it wasn't one culture it wasn't it's different genders different ages and yeah it, it's it's over a span of of years and years and years at least a thousand years so it, it's kind of crazy it's clearly not one event now specialists are still in hot debate on why people from so many different geographic locations would travel to the site and die and or their bodies be left over a period of that thousand plus years. In 2019, Harvard scientists conducted a DNA study on a few of the remains found there. And the remains traveled from far away. Some are from South Africa, but others are far away as Greece. Now, this seems odd and unexplained. However, there is one possible thread to possibly connect all of this. In the Hindu faith, there is a pilgrimage that still occurs up the same winding pass through these same mountains. Is it possible that these bones could be connected to such a pilgrimage thousands of years ago and still going on? For some reason, whatever the reason, they met their demise here. Let's take it a step further. In local legend, a Hindu goddess by the name of Nana Davi, who rules over these mountains... Now, she oversees the second tallest mountain here in India. There are shrines built in her honor all across this area even today. There is a legend that tells of a king and a queen and their followers who were taking the sacred pilgrimage themselves to visit some of these shrines. They were being unruly, disrespectful, and partying during the trip to such a degree that it disgraced the goddess Nana Devi. 
So out of anger as they approached one of her holy shrines, she called upon iron balls to rain from the sky to strike down the king, queen, and all of their followers, striking them all down dead. Now, perhaps explaining these many skeletal remains, many of which do, in fact, have blunt force trauma damage to their skulls. But let's intervene, science to legend. The area is quite desolate, and without trees or much cover at all, it is also factual the area is known for tremendous storms with hail. You guessed it. It's documented that hail in this region can reach the size of your fist. Good gravy. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine a caravan of travelers with no protection, no shelter, getting caught in one of these said storms, and how natural weather and elements would hail down the size of fists would do just that and strike oh, you down would, dead in your tracks. That would ruin your day. Yes. This could plausibly explain the groups of people of over a period of a thousand years and why they might have met their demise. Then their bodies were basically disposed here in mass accumulative grave. That's a pretty eerie story. And one as a hiker, can you imagine just kind of winding around this trail and there's this semi-frozen lake and just arm bones and skulls and leg bones just sticking out to greet you yeah I'd, I'd like i mentioned i'd stumbled across that story a couple of times and it's yeah it's kind of messed up i couldn't imagine <laughs> stuff i couldn't imagine stumbling across a body a body you know, remains of any capacity yeah. let alone much less hundreds or even yeah. like thousands in the catacombs that'd be messed up so kind of wrap this up i felt that uh it'd be good to have a personal anecdote and i had made a note of this particular gentleman, even as I started my notes, I, I, I open a document up on my computer and I just kind of look at, at my source material and I make, you know, I start jotting down notes. But one of the first things I put in my notes to do funeral rites was the name Bill Stanley. Now, he's not nobody famous. You know, um, if you've heard the name, it's almost certainly associated with the story I'm about to tell. But Bill Stanley was my grandma's neighbor. My grandma lived in Ohio. Uh, my grandma, on my father's side. And we would go visit her in the summer months and we'd spend about a month with her. And when she, she, she lived in the country outside of Mechanicsburg, Ohio, in a big, huge ranch house on a lot of land. Uh, and when she got older, it was just too much house for her. I think that happens, you know. Right. So she moved into Mechanicsburg the, there in Ohio, a very small town, uh, comparable to maybe Dixon or something like that. You know, it's a small town. Lebanon is way bigger than Mechanic. You could walk from one side of Mechanicsburg to the other in an hour, you know, tops, walking. And that's if you were just enjoying your day and strolling leisurely. <laughs> Uh, and my brother and I wandered around all over that town back in those days. Well, my grandma's neighbor was a gentleman, uh, well, a couple, um, but it, his name was Bill Stanley. And I, you know, I regret to say at this point, I don't remember his wife's name. Probably wouldn't even remember his name if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, his story had popped up. But he was a very good guy. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you there. His name popped up, and this was on your list. My, you started yeah, to I had say, already started my list, and then I did a search, and his name popped up in my search. I, I, but his name had come up multiple times since his passing and in this particular anecdote. I remember his name because of the story more than because I remember, you know. Right, right. I'm, I'm Jogged your memory. I'm 30 years older now than I was when I when I knew him, so. But this popped up on your uh, research. Yeah, it came up for my research. reasons so, of something being a little, little different about his funeral. Yeah, that was a little bit of kismet there. I would go ahead and, you know, obviously I had the name, the story came up, so, you know, it happened for a reason, right? But he was a he was a good guy. He was a trucker by trade uh, and a motorcyclist, you know, in, in his free time. 
and I recall many a summer night sitting on his back porch uh, sharing a drink, him and my grandma visiting, me and my brother, you know, being kids. I was a little older. Uh, I'm four years older than my brother. And so even I think the last time we were there, I might have been 16, 17 years old. I didn't really run around in the yard and play. I sat with all the adults, which, you know. Tried to do adult things. Yeah. Uh, but they were good people. Very, very friendly. And I just, I remember them being, you know, good neighbors to my grandma. And he helped her out with a bunch of things. And she was, they were friendly. So fast forward a few years and uh, the invention of Facebook and all that. I see someone share an article about a strange funeral in Ohio. And I, and I, I scroll through it and I see the guy's face. There's a picture of him when he was alive. And I'm like, oh man, I know this guy. So of course I got to read this article. I want to find out what's going on. So when Mr. Stanley died, apparently they built this platform, pretty big size platform. And to this platform, they mounted his 1967 electric glide motorcycle. Now that was his passion. That was his life. You know, when he wasn't on the road in the truck, he was on the road on the motorcycle. So they mounted this bike to this big platform. They, I think they put flowers and stuff around it, you know, in remembrance. All right. And then they placed Bill on the motorcycle, Bill Stanley. As if he was riding As it. As if he was riding it. Hands on the handlebars. And, and, you know, of course, his eyes were closed in, in, you know, rest. But he had his biker leathers on, his helmet, the whole nine yards. Just as he would have, just as you would have seen him on any day riding that motorcycle down the road. And then they built a plexiglass enclosure and put it over the motorcycle and the platform and secured it and sealed it. And Bill Stanley led his own funeral procession. Uh, I'm assuming he was buried in Mechanicsburg. I imagine this would have been a heck of a sight for a town like that. Quite a parade. But apparently he led his own procession on his motorcycle and they interred him in this plexiglass enclosure, enclosure, bike and all, when they buried him. Mr. Bill Stanley, like I said, a guy I had known for, for many years as a child, friendly neighbor type. You know, I, I thought it was kind of weird. Like I said, I put his name in my notes, and then in the search for unusual burial rites, unusual funerals, when his came up, I thought, well, that's absolutely, the, like, I have no choice. I have to include that story, because that's somebody I know. Right. And I remember even whoever it was that posted on Facebook as a friend of mine or whatever, I even made the comment, like, oh, that's crazy, because I knew that guy. Like I said, he was my grandma's neighbor. So, yeah, I mean, more power to the guy. He got to, you know, they say you can't take it with you. He did the best he could. I did and, it my and, way to yeah, your earlier statement. Way. I did it my way. But yeah, he was always a real cool guy. And, and it was kind of interesting that, you know, he went out on his terms. I, 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 I like that idea. What a way to be remembered. Most people aren't going to be able to afford to do something like that. Well, and we were talking before we stepped back here into the recording studio. And, and, and I was trying to struggle to remember where I had seen somewhat of a similar reference. And I think it was in Sons of Anarchy, the series. There was one of the biker guys that had died. And they just brought him in the bar on his motorcycle and propped him up. And they, they had drinks around him. And, you know, kind and of. I don't know if that's a common biker tradition. I, I really don't either. Don't. But if not, I, you know, that, that little piece of Sons of Anarchy well, you might d- very well have been inspired by yeah. this guy that yeah. I used but to I mean, know. I don't hear too often of a guy being buried with his motorcycle. I mean, that's that's unheard of, you might say. So very interesting story and very cool that it's actually connected directly to you. Well, we've just shared a few of uh, antidotes and stories and tales, maybe giving you guys something to think about, some new insight. We certainly hope that you found it interesting, and we greatly appreciate you listening to yet another episode of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravensloft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. 
It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.